I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Wurundjeri people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. What's really interesting about non in a social aspect as well is that someone could love a drink and hate a drink and you're like, oh, I didn't know that about you, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, it really opens up a lot of conversation um, because of this experience that you've never had before. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Aaron Trotman is the founder of Non, a drinks brand that has revolutionised the non-alcoholic beverage industry. Located in Melbourne, their dynamic drinks are being poured at the best bars, restaurants and retail stores across the country. Hi Aaron, thanks for joining me. Good morning, how are you? I'm really well. I'm so glad to finally have you on board and doing this podcast because I have been drinking your drinks and pouring them for quite some time and I'm such a total huge fangirl so I'm glad to have you here. I appreciate the support. Um, What one's your favourite? Oh, caramelised pear and kombu is right up my alley. I don't know what number that is. I never remember the numbers but I'll definitely remember the flavours and um, yeah, it's just, I don't know, there's just something comforting about that drink but then I love the savoury elements. I could go on forever and uh, in fact, maybe I will later on but it's, yeah, by far my favourite but I've I've actually poured uh, nearly all of them, I think, at some point um, in our non-alcoholic pairing at Key in my time and then also have bought them just, you know, to drink at, at home with my family. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think um, it's non too. Um, I think Key's had it on since we launched. I don't think it's ever come off the menu from what I can see. So, um, always been, uh, they've been a very big fan of that drink and uh, we're very lucky to be in there for sure. Uh, I, look, it was, it was a big deal um, to find your, your product um, because you know, in my opinion, when I, when I first started doing kind of the temperance or the abstaining from alcohol kind of drinks, um, there wasn't a lot of finished products to work with. Um, and so we would create a lot of them in-house with our chefs. Um, and what yours was one of the first products I came across where it was balanced, um, was a finished product. I loved the ingredients. I liked the ethical culture around the brand and yeah, kind of came on board, but we're getting way ahead of ourselves. I want to first hear a little bit about you. You've been described as a man on a mission. Tell me a little bit about your background and where did you get your start in your very colorful career? Um, So I had a background in FMCG from cosmetics um, and I was traveling around trying to find a nose for a new brand that I was working on. Um, during that time and that brand, there were elements of non that probably existed um, and I was trying to make a tea blend um, for the cosmetics brand. And when I was doing some research while eating out, while trying trying to find noses with my wife around the world, um, I had the temperance pairings. So Clove Club was really the one that um, I was like, oh, this is really awesome. And I actually understand this better than a wine pairing. Um, I think that wine pairing can go over a lot of people's heads. Um, You know, I don't want to generalize or give a number here, but I think a lot of people uh, would think that there's a white, red, a darker red, um, a blush sort of drinks. um, And some of the pairings in those um, degustations could go over their head. Also, they're quite long. Um, You are definitely excessively drinking and then you can somewhat forget the meal sometimes as well. So, um, 
loving food um, and having those pairings, I was like, why can't, if the best kitchens in the world are doing these themselves in-house, like you were saying you're doing at Key, like that is the salt for the wine glass. Um, so I was like, let's just make some delicious drinks, do some branding and see how it goes. I just thought it was a really good idea. I didn't have a lot of knowledge about non-alcoholic and what was happening. Um, ended up being that the timing was right. I got pretty lucky and it just felt like a good idea and felt like something that needed to be in the bottle. Miranda didn't drink and still doesn't drink. Um, so it was kind of a drink to make for her first and foremost. And uh, then the rest was history when when it went out and everyone's like, we need this. The labor costs are too high. Um, you know, these are really difficult to make in-house. Um, all of those things. So we do all that work um, for restaurants. And yeah, the proof's just been in the pudding. Incredible because, you know, I think it goes to show your experience, like you said, at the Clove Club. Um, in my experience, dining out and, and having kind of non-alcoholic pairings for, for a lot of the time were made up of these sickly sweet mocktails and sugary sodas and things. Um, and my experience was always not great in Australia and it's come a really, really long way. So it's great to hear that you had such a good experience uh, around the globe. As a self-confessed foodie, do you have a first memory of a great drink or a great plate of food that kind of started you on the path of kind of loving the art of dining? Um, I grew up in the country, so my palate wasn't very refined when I first moved to the city, to say the least. Um, I think it was an egg sandwich that I had in um, South Yarra where I was like, oh, this is just beautiful, simple ingredients, but done in a really good way. Um, and then, yeah, I remember like sticking my nose up and first having sashimi and all those sorts of things. I was like, oh, I don't know about this. Um, <clears throat> but I think probably my favourite dish in Melbourne is um, the seafood linguine at Cafe Cucina on Chapel Street. I just can't go past it. <laughs> Good ingredients done well is such an understatement. And you spent some time in Japan, right? So did you have the egg sandwiches from the servos there? I sure did. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and are they epic? I've never had one. Oh, they're so good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there was one place um, just off off a side road in Shibuya down the way there, Dakin Yama, and it was called Buy Me Stand and just looked like whatever shop. And it was honestly the best sandwiches I've ever had. Oh, I love that. That's I think that's pretty cool. And look, a well-made egg sandwich is, is – yeah, it, it's it's an art form and, and you can overcomplicate it. So, um, you know, I do a lot of wine judging and egg sandwiches are the go-to um, little nibble to have in between, you know, a flight of 40 Cabernet. So, I, I feel you there. Tell me a little bit about the light bulb moment for Non. When you decided this is what you wanted to do, you know, who do you look to to kind of begin creation? How did that process get started? So... In the initial instance, I contracted a chef to give me a hand with the recipe development. I had a very good idea on formulas, um, the perfumery-based approach to it, on getting the notes and the levels into the drink and making sure it's balanced. But then really importantly, having the, um, you know, the scalability, using the right ingredients, testing all the right ingredients, um, being super consistent because I know all of those things can affect it. And then also the changes when you scale up of making a drink. Um, so that was the first part. After about three months of development, it didn't feel like it was going very well. Um, 
and I just ended up putting a pin in it and said, right, let's just take these out. Um, and then it was Chase Bertoncello from Oh My that wanted to order when I just asked him to like taste them to see if they were any good. And I was like, I think I, <laughs> I think I'm on here. I think I've actually done something good. So <laughs> that was when it that's when it all struck. Um, and then I've always wanted to. I think anyone in Melbourne um, that has any entrepreneurial spirit has thought they should own a cafe or do a little restaurant or bar or something. <laughs> um, and I always wanted to do that, but it didn't make sense to me when I could sell products around the globe. So I was like, well, I'll do an FMCG product in a, in a bottle and then I don't, I'm, not, I'm not contained to an area of where the restaurant would be. My dishes come out in liquid form in glass bottle and I can ship them all around the world. So that's when it really sort of like struck. I was like, yep, this is, this is everything and it's ticking all the right boxes. Mm. Well, it certainly does tick all the right boxes. Non is classified as a non-alcoholic wine alternative, which is really interesting to, you know, kind of put yourself in that category now, because as we know, the low alcohol, the non-alcohol, that scene has just skyrocketed, but it's still in its infancy in Australia, isn't it? And there's still not a lot of labeling laws and and a a huge amount of kind of um, formation around how that, that kind of scene is developing. Yeah, it's it's very much a grey area, um, and that's in all the customs around the world, um, from the FDA in the US to us trading in Japan to Korea. Um, you know, there's different labelling laws in terms of what's in the drink, how many sulfites you're allowed to have in a drink of this class. So it just depends. Um, the wine alternative category is something that we coined because we're the first company to commercialise this type of beverage. Um and what I think is that it's confusing in ways as a wine alternative, but also the category is so young that you, people, consumers need a point to jump off from being wine or the wine at least tells you the occasion and the serve and you probably have it with food. Um, so that's for me, um, I played around with other ideas on how did oat milks do it, um, you know, by changing the I to a Y, could you call it wine? But then that word's not that sexy. So then you start to get in this marketing battle and you're just like, I will just leave it for now. Um, And then if you call it alternative alcohol or anything else, um, it starts to get confusing. And everything that we do by cooking the produce and putting them into drinks and having actual people make them and using real products, um, real produce is just, how do you how do you coin that? How do you put all those into just a couple of words? Yeah. So one alternative is where we're at at the moment. Mm. I, think it's, I think it's really clever because like you said, when people understand what wine is and they have, a, like you said, a preconceived notion of it. And like you said, pouring it in a glass, maybe not pouring it over ice, like you said, setting the scene for how it's to be sipped and appreciated. I think you've established a lot within that. Um, As you would know, we now have a lot of low alcohol wines and I think it's really important to distinguish what this is and how it's made. Um, So tell me a little bit about how you go about building and creating a balanced drink. Tell me, talk to me a bit about sugar, acid, tannin, savory. Talk to me a bit perhaps about the ingredients that go into one of your products. Sure. So we would, we're looking for the four markers um, that we see as important in the balanced drink. So fruits, one of them, 
Um, that gives you nose and, you know, the flavor. Um, tannin's really important um, to give you the astringency that you, you're looking for in a good drink. Acid always comes from Verjou. So that's seven young grapes from the Brossa Valley that we get made for us. Um, salt will come from Murray River Salt or we'll use something else in replacement for it for umami. So it could be tamari or it could be olive brine, just depending. And then what we're not afraid to do um, is using sugar to balance out the drink. Um, and it's real raw sugar. It's not stevias and xylitols and all those things that don't really taste real. Um, so we look at it like that. And then each component, depending on the extraction method, will start to do the bits that we need so it all forms up in the finished drink. So let's take an example of salted raspberry and chamomile. We use freeze-dried raspberries. We, didn't, we couldn't use raspberry juice. We couldn't use frozen raspberries. We've cooked them. We've done everything. So there's a cold extraction on those. The reason why we do that is we want to keep the bright, the bright tart, fresh flavor of the raspberries. Then we use chamomile, dried chamomile leaves. And then that gives us a lot of tannin and then also this really interesting creamy finish as well. All of the acids coming from the verju and then Murray River salt to balance out the palate and bring all of those things together. And we, would ha we have those four markers in all of our expressions across the range. So that's how we attack it when we, when we look at them. Where alcohol removed stuff is pretty linear. It's a grape. You take the alcohol out. And then ethanol carries a lot of body and a lot of flavor. So then you are either left with what you have or you try to bring things in to substitute it to beef it back up. The problem is with alcohol removed products and wine especially at the moment is it's such an afterthought that they're probably not using the best grapes that they can to be doing it. You can start to see there's some alcohol removed products coming into the market that are actually really expensive because they've used half decent ingredients. Um, but everyone thinks that non-alcoholic things should be cheaper when actually they, they should be more expensive if you think about it in terms of the food and the produce that we use in our products. Yeah, and I mean, in, in saying that as well, some of those spinning cones and whatnot are incredibly expensive um, mechanisms and, you know, that's also going into some of the price. But what I love about your product is you, we talk more about what's inside the bottle, the absolute absolute layering effect of the consideration of how you've kind of constructed by adding things to your drink rather than taking them away. And I think that that's really important because for me, it feels like a very natural, but also a very considered product. And I think that you taste that when you drink them. Like you said, sugar is not a bad thing. We often talk about it being, you know, something that we want to remove, but sugar gives us beautiful glycerol effects and, and, and it has a, um, you know, a weight to it. And, and not having any there, it can be, like you said, sour and astringent and puckering and not something that you want to have another sip of. But the sugar that you always pop in your drinks is always incredibly measured as well. So I think the construction of, of nons is, um, you know, the level is, is right up there with some of the best drinks that we have on, on any market. Thank you. <laughs> um, in terms of um, convention, it says uh, non-products exit outside the bounds convention, indifferent to the rules, irreverent in attitude. How would you describe the culture around your non-brand and who, who's drinking these drinks? Um, we're finding moderators are drinking them um, more than probably people that are full dedicated non-alc drinkers um, because they're looking for flavour 
in between their alcoholic drinks and their non-alcoholic drinks. Um, in terms of the culture, um, we're doing really well with um, design crew, um, foodies and food explorers, all those sorts of people. People that are up for new experiences and trying new things is really our super fans and our early adopters. And we saw some of them come through um, when we opened the doors at HQ on Friday. Um, they were just up for it, you know, and it was, you can do all the marketing stuff that you want about the avatars and what your customers look like. And they basically showed up and I was like, no way, these are in all of our PowerPoint presentations. So it was pretty funny. <clears throat> <laughs> so tell me a little bit about non-HQ and what can visitors expect from the kind of immersive tour that you're offering? Tell me all about it. So we've just opened, we've spent two years building it. Um, I was never happy with with where we're, where it was at, so um, we haven't we've left no stone unturned. It's probably the easiest way to say it. Um, so you'll get there. Um, you'll have a tea um, that we'll create for you. Uh, then you walk into a flavor workshop. In that workshop, we start to break down exactly what we do, and also show the complexity of what we do. Um, and that is in our first kitchen, which is the prep kitchen. So that has our ovens in it, our dehydrators and all those sorts of things. So this is just where we get the ingredients ready or do the extractions. From there, you move through to the kettle room and then that is the engine of everything that we do. So there's a cage that drops into this open top um, kettle and in there we can hold a lot of fruit, um, but dried fruit. So, for example, um, we can hold about 300 kilos worth of cut up and dehydrated oranges in there in its raw weight. Obviously, in this dehydrated weight, it's a lot less. So, we take you through that process. We say why we heat things up to pasteurize them, um, why we cool them down really quickly to get out of the food danger zone um, in cooking, um, and then sort of do a tour of the rest of the blending areas and, and the factory and how it all goes out, how it comes back and then ships around the world to all the other countries that we do. And then towards the end, uh, you'll get an, a, a product immersion. So that'll be run by myself or um, Nick, who's the head of the kitchen. And there'll be some food pairings as well. And then once we've explained everything and then we go through and go, this is how everything that we just said presents in the drink. Everyone's like, wow, I can taste that. And they, and they can picture where the ingredients were processed. Um, and that's what's probably, we've only done a couple of them now, but um, that's what's been really special. You can see people ticking and they're like, oh my God, that happened here. And wow, that's really complicated. Um, and there's just a newfound respect for it. And that's the idea of it, but also the, the main idea behind it is transparency. Um, something that we have is that we're not using flavor houses. We're not buying chemicals in drums and mixing them together or just getting the formula mixed together offsite and adding some water to it. You know, we're doing everything ourselves um, because we have to, because it's, it's so finite what we're doing um, that we can't give it to someone else to, to possibly try to execute. I love that. And I really like what you said about it being um, transparent because I do feel from the get-go that you guys have been incredibly transparent about what goes into your drink and about the processes that, that are used in terms of 
um, sustainability commitment and, and the practices that you used and and the ongoing work you're doing. And I think that that's really important because, like we said, this is a um, a little bit of new territory and uh, you can be tricked up by, you know, reading labels that say low sugar or whatever it may be on there. And I think that just letting people know exactly how things are made really it it empowers the consumer to say I know what I'm putting into my body and I believe in this and I I want to go along for the ride which is a perfect place to go to non-HQ it's the world's first inaugural non-alcoholic cellar door which I think is so exciting for Australia to be for us as you know as as a country to be the people that put that on the map and crazy exciting for you guys yeah it's really cool um We've always, from the from the start of the brand, had the ingredients on the front of the label, um, and they're the exact same ingredients on the back of the label because it is the real produce that I'm talking about. You don't get to the front of the label and it goes raspberries and chamomile or whatever, and then on the back it says uh, raspberry flavor, chamomile extract, um, acid stabilizers, emulsifiers, all those sorts of things. We don't have any of those at all because um, we don't need them. Um, also to us it's been really important it's part of that transparency thing is that you can taste everything on on the label as well and you get them at different times during the journey of having a glass of non whereas you get the raspberry hit then the chamomile finish and then the salt starts to come through and the acid lingers and all those sorts of things so that's something that we've always been really proud of and will always be sticking to it's like everything has to present you have to be able to taste everything that's on the label. Yeah, and I think you, I think you really do. Be, and I think it's interesting because it is on the label. It opens up a conversation. I know the guests at Key would often talk about, oh, kombu, like the seaweed, is that in there? And you'd be like, yeah, absolutely. You know, this is like we talked about umami. This is where this comes from. Did you know that Australia has some amazing, you know, indigenous kombu that's no found nowhere else in the world? Like it, it's so great because it's perhaps just not what people would have thought, but by labeling it there, that that whole conversation just takes off. And, um, you know, you just see people kind of think about these drinks so differently. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> and also um, what's really interesting about non in, in a social aspect as well is that, Someone could love a drink and hate a drink and you're like, oh, I didn't know that about you, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it really opens up a lot of conversation um, because of this experience that you've never had before when you have a glass of non. So I think it does, a, it does a lot of things. The ingredients, the way we do it, it does a lot for the socialization um, and the conversation. And they look bloody great in the glass too, I have to say. You know, you can pop it in a, in a flute or a really gorgeous wine glass. All the colours just look delicious. And it's kind of like walking through a restaurant, you know, you see the espresso martini go out on a tray and the next minute there's a thousand espresso martinis ordered. It's a little bit like that with non. If somebody sees it in a beautiful wine glass, they're like, what's that? Is that like, you know, a, an orange wine? What is that? And you're like, no, actually it's, it's a non-alcoholic drink and it's delicious, you know? And, and, and I, I would often just then bring it over and say, just have a little taste. Cause it, you know, any time of the day. And like you said, you know, you do a 10, 12 course wine pairing. That's a lot of wine. Sometimes you really need a, like you said, a moderator, a drink just to kind of like let you catch yourself. And it's non is perfect for that. Yes. <laughs> now, I want to know a little bit about carbonation. Tell me the decision around carbonating the drinks. So, they're not all carbonated. Um, we test them. They obviously start um, still and then we decide if they're going to be sparkling or not. Um, 
I think that as we've gotten better over time, that some of them could be not sparkling anymore um, and present present way better um, still now. But it just depends, like, um, on the expression, on the occasion. Like, I wouldn't change salted raspberry and chamomile for that blush moment to a still product because it's bubbles and it's fun and it's bright and it's fresh. Um, yes. So there were, there were, in the probably the initial instance, um, there was times that the carbonation, while we were figuring everything out, that we needed it as well um but mm. we don't we don't now um for for palette weight and body and all those sorts of things because we have so much of a better understanding on all the ingredients all the equipment we've bought better equipment that's fit for purpose and custom built so um that is why some are carbonated and, and some aren't and have, have never been i think that we could change things but again, it's just like I don't think it really matters. We're still so early in in the piece here with the category um, that every the the exposure and people actually having our products or a wine alternative is so new um, that I don't think anyone's unless you're a super fan, you'd be like, oh, I'd like to really have this still, or I'd like to see this not sparkling. So I don't think it's anything that we have to change either. <clears throat> mm. I, I think it's interesting because I think they also uh, have a sense of occasion um, when you've got something that's a little bit sparkling or not. I know the tomato water and the basil and the celery salt one, that to me was just, I mean, that, and that's still, and for me that was, when I tried that, I was like, thank you. Thank thank God somebody's putting something like this in a bottle because we used to make that it was something similar in a kitchen and, you know, it was a labor intensive process and I couldn't ask the chefs all the time, can you make me a huge batch of tomato water just because I want to drink it? And I was so thrilled when that product came along because I was like, now this is me right here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That one's always been still. Um, oh, we had a bottling error once and that was um, sparkling. But um, once we took the top off, it's actually interesting. Um, depending on the fruit, um, the proteins and, and the ion that it has charged on the actual fruit will actually determine the carbonation of it and how long it actually lasts as well. So when there was actually when uh, non six the tomato water and basil was uh, accidentally carbonated in one round, the bubbles went in like maybe thirty minutes because it wasn't enough proteins for the CO two molecules to charge up. Fascinating. I love that. I love that. Now, in talking about a drink scene that's gone through the roof, you know, I don't feel that there is really a non-comparison. Um, how has non been uh, received in other countries and around the world? So we're doing really well in Singapore um, and Japan as well. Uh, we were probably – I've just gotten back from the States and it, it isn't as developed as the UK and Australia – um, which has been really interesting to find out. Um, but I also realized that a product like Noan really helps the on-trade and can actually kick off that on-trade revolution. And I, I think we help that here in Australia, um, like you said, key when you discover the products. And I think that, you know, we will do something very similar in the US as well. Um, I think – and with a non-out program, um, which is really important as well, and having beverage directors or venue managers that are really on the forefront of it, having a really well-built-out program is really important. So 
having a really good craft beer option, having some, um, well, mocktails is a dirty word now, so some non-alcoholic cocktails on the menu as well. Um, and something like a non, you've got a really good, well, well-rounded program, and they don't really have that in the US at the moment. Um, and then Japan's got other issues where most non-alcoholic products use potassium sorbate, and that's completely banned in Japan, so not really any non-alcoholic brands can even get into there. So there's every country's totally different, um, but, yeah, we're seeing what we do for venues here in Australia being the same all around the world. Yeah, I can really see that that is such a great avenue, um, especially because, um, you know, whether it be bartenders or sommeliers, uh, those people that are kind of bridging that gap of kind of being able to have some time at a table and be able to talk them through it, but also just that that ability to be able to, to showcase it alongside great cuisine. Um I, I can just see some of the great, you know, restaurants of, of the States really picking up on that. Some of the proper higher end kind of fine dining restaurants would just absolutely love it. So I'm excited to see where, where it goes from there. Um, in terms of uh, what's next for you guys, what's on the horizon? Um, well, we're very much actively moving into the States as well and um, cementing our spot here in Australia in terms of, you know, our growth and where we want to be in terms of our product placements. Uh, this year feels like it's the first year where COVID is kind of gone. Um, hospitality seems to be okay staffing-wise. Um, still not 100%, but it feels to be good. So th- that's really our focus. Um, absolutely innovation, new products, um, figuring out this cellar door and how it works. It's going to take time. Um, and we're going to get better at it as well, just like everything else. So all those things being said, we're, we're pretty busy, um, and UK is absolutely on the agenda um, at some point too uh, from, from no lack of uh, offers to go into there, but it just needs to be the right time as, as we kind of have spoken about already. But uh, the product needs a lot of education, so it also needs a lot of support from people from non, so brand ambassadors or market managers in those markets to do the trial and the education and everything as well. So there's only so much that we can really do and buy it off at once. And then you've obviously got time zone challenges. You know, I'm getting up at, I've got a market manager in New York now and I'm getting up at 4 a.m. so I can at least get a couple of hours in in the morning, make sure they're okay. So... <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't envy you for that, but it sounds like there's lots of work still to do, and um, I'm I'm excited to see to see what's next for Non. But um, so far, you know, it's been a pretty radical ride, and I'm I'm thrilled to have gone along for it and to see the new products come out, and it's always really exciting. I want to ask you, Aaron, if you could only drink three drinks, any drinks for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? Um, I would put. Dave Verhul's Saison Aperitifs in there. Um, I love love those drinks, the Black Walnut uh, especially. Uh, I think they uh, live in a similar world to uh, non, um, essentially, is putting real produce into vermouth. Um, Kerner wines, um, then Momolo, um, for sure. That's just a beautiful wine. And my final one would be um, 
I'd have to say good at gals wines. Just um, mm. yeah, I just love how it. interesting. Yeah, I love that. I will. I love those saisons. Um, Corner wines, amazing. And it's funny you said the Mamolo because I I can definitely see it all like inspiration behind um, some of those crunchy red fruits that you can get in that, but then the savoury elements as well. So I can see why you'd really like that wine. <laughs> yeah, it's delicious. It's so good. And good at Gal, absolutely delicious wines um, that have, I will say, changed the face of perhaps some of those um, – uh, indigenous varieties that we see as well. So three excellent drinks. Um, I think that I can see where your palate lies and it's been such a true pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for, for spending some time with me and uh, we look forward. Good luck at non-HQ and hopefully I'll get down there at some point and I can come see and check out all your facilities. Thank you for having me. It's been nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you, Aaron. Cheers to you. Thank you. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at overaglasspod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.